And so I, I was having flashbacks in an hourly basis, but I, it didn't really hit me how severe that was. Life isn't the same after trauma. You can never really go back. So you have to go forward. You have to find a new path forward. Welcome to the podcast of Rotary Magazine, the official publication of Rotary International. I'm Steve Edwards. Over the course of a lifetime, most people will experience trauma in some form or another, whether caused by war, illness, or another heart-wrenching challenge. In this episode, we dive deeper into stories of recovery and even growth after trauma. Later in the program, I talk with journalist and author Michaela Haas. She's researched and written extensively about healing, post-traumatic growth, and finding new resilience. But first we meet Zach Skiles. His story is featured in the November issue of Rotary Magazine. A military veteran, Zach was on the front lines of the war in Iraq, where he endured endless missile attacks and lost close friends. Afterward, while trying to readjust to civilian life, he reached nearly rock bottom and was homeless. Zach began to find help at Pathway Home, a VA residential treatment center in Northern California, a community greatly supported over the years by Rotary members. There, he slowly and very surely built a future for himself, one which now includes helping others. Today, Zach is a clinical psychologist at the Portland, Oregon VA Medical Center. Zach, great to talk to you, and thanks so much for making time for this. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Before we talk about your story, I'd love for you to talk just a little bit about your life today. How would you characterize where you are personally and professionally and from a health standpoint today? Man, I, gosh, I really like where I'm at today. It's kind of amazing the opportunities that I'm able to engage with. Right now, I'm working with the social neuroscience and psychotherapy lab with a Dr. Christopher and a great crew of psychedelic facilitators and researchers and get to help out veterans at the Portland VA and other places out in the world. And I've, yeah, just been able to continue learning how best to serve my community and how to kind of further engage personally as I keep a life, uh, work-life balance. So just really getting the privilege to be able to connect with the world around me and just enjoy it. Uh, that's fantastic. And, you know, certainly uh, what you describe, as we know from the story in the magazine, wasn't, wasn't always that way. So what kind of a struggle uh, has it been for you, broadly speaking, to, to get to this point for you? So I guess, I guess one good place to start is the invasion of Iraq, where there was a lot of post-trauma. There were a lot of uh, symptoms that I now know as, as night terrors or flashbacks or disassociative episodes, emotion dysregulation brought about by significant and repeated concussions. Eventually, I was uh, homeless and really struggling with flashbacks on a daily basis and disassociative spells for folks who don't know kind of look like a, a reboot of the system where you forget kind of where you are, where you've come from. It can be a variety of different experiences actually, but that for me was was a kind of classic symptom where I would 
be in a, a store like Walmart, the stimulus would overwhelm and my brain would reset and I would forget where I was, how I got there and what I was doing. So those were kind of like aspects of, of life for me long ago that made it really difficult to function. And thankfully, it's, it's a pretty big 180 is today. It's remarkable when you think about it. And we want to learn more about your journey. But why don't we go back to your time in the military itself? Um, you mentioned that you served your country in the Iraq War in 2003. You grew up in Northern California and enlisted in the Marines at the age of 18, uh, just a few years earlier. What was it that prompted you to join the military? You know, I I dropped out of school, actually, and was working a few odd jobs and realized that I could not pay my rent and take my partner out. And I wanted to rectify that. And one of the things that I was doing while working at Blockbuster Video back in those days was renting out videos to a Marine Corps recruiting office. And one of them came in looking like Denzel Washington in a dress blue uniform. And I was like, <laughs> man, that's good. I, I could get into that. Yeah. And he he was talking to me about the GI Bill and paying for college. And I was like, huh, well, you know, that's actually something I want to look into. And at the time I was 17, it was 2000, it was pre 9-11. There was no war that I knew of on the horizon. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm good at camping. I really like being outdoors. I mean, why not go for this? This is this is great. Yeah. So volunteered and, and enlisted uh, not long after that. And then what happened after that? So let's see here. I think December of 2000, I ended up joining. March, I graduated uh, Marine Corps boot camp. And I ended up in Okinawa, Japan, where not long after that, just a few months later, 9-11 happened and the world pretty much changed. And I realized I was in a hot spot. You ultimately uh, were deployed to Iraq in those early days of the Iraq war um, and found yourself along with so many other men and women in the military facing combat for the first time. What was it that you experienced and what were the dynamics you were facing every day as a now wartime soldier, not just a peacetime soldier? Yeah, it was a very different time because this was before a lot of combat had taken place. So we were really just learning a lot in 2003. And so were our opponents who were learning about IEDs and how to bury them correctly. And there were in those days, a lot of Scud missile attacks that were happening every 30 minutes on the hour, uh, which meant that the first two weeks of the war for the first 14 days, I, I slept for 11 hours because you were continually woken up and uh, I was definitely not the only one. So I stopped counting after about 30 attacks. And my staff sergeant went ahead and, and calculated about 240 small arms attacks from there. And so we, as a, as a platoon full of motor vehicle operators and drivers, we stayed on the road for security runs or supply runs. I, for a time, was a, a refueler as well, so getting fuel to needed camps for as, as far north as we were, and then returning to the rear to refuel and, and disperse again. That's kind of what life looked like. 
you ultimately finished your tour in Iraq and completed your service in the Marines in 2004. What was life like for you upon your return from Iraq? Really confusing, honestly. I I knew I had a lot of baggage and I also didn't have very many narratives to follow other than our kind of historic Vietnam veteran, a classic kind of combat veteran. And so I thought to myself, well, I guess this is this is kind of it. This is what I do. I, I white knuckle it and just live out my life. And so I, I did my best actually to, to find artistic outlets because I would, I would draw every day. I was in Iraq, I had a little sketchbook there and came out and told myself, all right, I need to continue to, to have a, an artistic outlet for this kind of emotional baggage that I have right now. And I, I showed up to the VA, but really didn't understand how to convey my own symptoms properly. So I continued to be put on waiting lists that didn't really go anywhere at the time. I kind of rejected my identity as a veteran, didn't want to really connect outside of my own friends from my platoons. I didn't really want to connect with other veterans. I didn't really want to relive any of my time in the military. I didn't understand how much that actually hurt me and how much it was not a service to kind of connect with that identity and and to integrate it with my life in ways that were really beneficial, that I had actually learned quite a bit of wisdom and developed some pretty great skills in the military. But at that time, I had also been so traumatized by combat. And so there was a lot of confusion, I think a lot of denial as well about having PTSD for a little while. And I really needed to come to that fact and was able to do so at the pathway home as I was deteriorating and uh, slowly became homeless. Yeah. Tell us more about, you say slowly deteriorating and ultimately became homeless. What ultimately happened to you that, that prompted you to seek help at the pathway home? Gosh, so much. I lost the ability to really function. And when I say function, I mean, be able to regulate myself. So emotionally, psychologically, flashbacks were happening sometimes hourly with me. So having to actually navigate social situations when traumatic events are intrusively entering your mind or somatically in the body was really difficult for me. And it prevented me from from being able to work regular jobs. So I continued to kind of get a job, have to leave. And so as, as that began to happen, my relationships also just took a toll. And I didn't come from a military family and they didn't really know what was going on or how to help. And so there was just a, an overall lack of social support, I think, for myself. And I I wasn't really sure who to turn to. And thankfully, we had a good caseworker at the VA who connected me to the pathway home at that time as I uh, had lost my apartment and didn't really have anywhere else to go. And I don't even think I had, was ready to admit I had PTSD at that time until I actually got to the pathway home and started meeting other veterans who clearly had PTSD in my eyes. And it took me a second to realize that they were actually doing the exact same things that I was doing and struggling with the exact same symptoms. And then it started to hit me. And 
I had my experiences validated by my community and slowly but surely kind of reconnected with my identity as a veteran and was able to integrate some of the better parts of it for myself moving forward. I want to talk more about your experience at the Pathway Home, which we should mention for those who don't know, uh, was a veterans facility in Northern California. You mentioned a minute ago, Zach, that earlier in your experience post-war, that when you did go to VA facilities, you couldn't quite articulate your symptoms and you're on a waiting list. Tell me more about that notion of not being able to articulate your symptoms. What do you mean by that? And and how common is that for veterans or any others that might be actually experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder? I think self-awareness for anybody is actually a challenge. I don't think we like to admit that a lot. And so I I was having flashbacks in an hourly basis, but I it didn't really hit me how severe that was. And since it wasn't killing me, I had been living in a world where I had been hunted and my life was on the line every hour of every day. So to come back home and all that's really going on is that your mind and body are screwed up. It's not an immediate threat for me. So the severity of that at that point in time in my life didn't hit on my level of severity. So when I showed up at the VA and they asked me how severe things were, my levels were just different from theirs. And so I continued to put my symptoms down as lower than they were. And I believe also it's just hard to ask for help sometimes. And so I I didn't want to show up and impose myself or to kind of what I knew is socially appropriate coming from a pretty collectivistic society was that I also didn't want to be a weak link in the chain in case there were other people that needed more help than me, I think I also probably reported my symptoms not as badly as they were as well. That culture of strength, but also the culture of sacrifice for, for others, that's, yeah. that's a big part of uh, the dynamic you experienced um, in the Marines. It, it makes sense. What did you and, and other veterans learn ultimately that, that helped you through uh, all that you were feeling and dealing with? Gosh, uh, I read a ton about military psychology once I realized that there was a lot to be learned from my experience in that realm. I really started soaking it up. And I think also just reconnecting with veterans kind of normalized my experiences and gave me a, a better roadmap as to how to heal, what that looked like in our community. And Really, after being in the Pathway Home for a while, I was motivated to start to learn about psychology and and help out at the VA because I realized at that point that one of the benefits was that they had a, a clinical team that was made up of mostly veterans themselves and thought to myself, well, heck, I'm definitely needed in this system to show up and offer some wisdom from our military and veteran cultural experiences and from there on, really hit the books and went and studied as much as I could when it came to getting my bachelor's in psychology and then my doctorate. Yeah, you ultimately went on to earn a PhD in clinical psychology. As you think about it, how did you find the inner strength or the confidence or the, the passion to 
move from a not having a bachelor's degree all the way to a PhD in this field. It's such an extraordinary accomplishment. Yeah, I honestly, I think it's an element of post-traumatic growth and and then also the the clear need and, and passion that comes from hitting rock bottom. One of the reasons why I love working with inpatient programs or domiciliaries is that a lot of folks are hitting a place where growth is required. It's not just needed. It is required to be able to move forward. And in those moments, it is the mother of necessity. There is an absolute need for you to dive deep within yourself to be able to create the change. And I had tapped into that, going homeless and really having my life fall apart and realizing, oh, okay, this is what's possible for me right now. And this is how I move forward. And I think also being able to help other veterans became my life's blood. Honestly, I, was, I started as a, a peer counselor when I was getting my bachelor's and running meditation and mindfulness groups and art therapy groups and being able to continue to connect with folks was really a motivating factor. Honestly, academia is a hellacious landscape, but I was able to move through that because I had the lived experience to offer as well as just the patience, I think, having work ethic from military and yeah, the training therein was super helpful. Zach, along the way, you met uh, members of Rotary, and I'm just curious to know what role individually or collectively did Rotary play in both your recovery and your journey since? Yeah, majorly, honestly. I, I like to talk about how the veteran community was really impactful when in actuality, our connections with civilians can be just as impactful. I think when entering into any kind of care for the first time, that, that veterans are going to be an initial need to like peer counselors or, or clinicians who are veterans. It's a definite need when first starting out. However, the goal is to connect with the civilian world around us and to be able to reintegrate in our communities and having Rotarian members show up, take us fishing, take us bowling, just to be able to hang out and, and feel normal for a little while was immensely helpful to the point where I, I started really connecting with the idea that I had created quite a bit of this narrative myself and needed to maybe readjust this if somebody like Steve, who was taking everybody fishing and bowling, really authentically wanted to hang out and be around me because he thought I was a nice guy. And to me, I didn't have many of those folks in my life at the time. And yeah, it was just those little acts of kindness that I think spoke volumes. In addition, obviously, to your lived experience, to your formal training, your studies, in recent years, you've also become increasingly interested in the emerging body of research into psychedelics, MDMA or psilocybin and others. What are we learning about the role that psychedelics can play in unlocking some of the secrets around mental health issues? Yeah, heck of a lot. I like the word unlocking. It it fits well. How I've described it to folks is 
our minds compartmentalize really naturally. And psychedelics have a way of making you present. So decompartmentalizing uh, what's been compartmentalized in your life. So if there is a traumatic issue that that has been compartmentalized, psychedelics allow your psyche to go straight for that issue and really start to sit with it. Again, being present with the experience. A lot of folks have said right now that having a psychedelic therapy session can be like 10 years of therapy, which I challenge and and really uh, would offer that it's more like 10 years of a meditation practice where you are really present with what's going on. You yourself, I think, have, if I understand correctly, have have also participated in kind of understanding more about how psychedelics work. What, what's been your experience like having having taken psychedelics and really trying to understand their potential effects? So as a human being and a, a combat veteran, I've experienced psychedelic therapies in a variety of ways that have been immensely helpful. There are parts of my experiences that I compartmentalized so deeply that they were being carried in my body and somatically I needed to release them. And it wasn't until I actually experienced psychedelic therapies that I was able to do that. To to surface them and bring them forward. Correct. Yeah. And so that is a personal experience motivated me to understand the research and now as a researcher, a psychedelic facilitator, someone in the, the psychedelic space, I've been watching it slowly with MDMA and psilocybin really start to address traumatic experiences in a similar way when uncovering parts of a person's self or experience. So we're looking at a decrease of PTSD symptoms after that, up to two to three months in some cases that folks are able to then not have as many flashbacks or not have as severe symptoms, which means they are able to actually work through what's needed cognitively or otherwise to be able to set up a better foundation for themselves. A lot of folks think that it's a one and done situation, but for what we're learning right now, it is in fact not a one-time experience and then you're cured but it is a significant difference that can happen for a lot of folks when moving through proper preparation as well as integration. So sessions kind of post psychedelic therapy session. What's the future hold? Where, where does, how far along is a science? What might you envision as, as a future state possibility for how these could be integrated more fully into treatments? My hope is that we start to hone in on what medicines work best for what symptoms. For example, MDMA works very well with PTSD. Psilocybin works amazing for depression. There there are just different aspects. Something like Ibogaine, for example, and a West African root is an amazing uh, psychedelic therapy for traumatic brain injury and having to, to heal synapses. There, there are a variety of medicines that I think can be used as tools um, to be able to go a little bit further than our, our current psychiatry, our current pharmacology. When we talk about 
post-traumatic growth or resiliency factors. Spirituality as a component is one of the top five each time. And so really being able to help people recover is what I have a lot of hope for in the near future. Uh, it, it begs a question as a follow-up too, um, particularly for friends or family members or, or others who may be thinking about um, someone they know and and watching them deal potentially with the effects of of trauma or maybe wanting to help. What advice would you give to them, both in individually seeking help, but in to those of us who might be supporting others uh, on their journeys? It's hard because it's different for everybody. Everybody has a unique experience when moving through their journey. I feel like staying present is the best advice that I'm able to give folks without a lot of judgment, but sitting in in the grief that's being experienced because really that is the response to trauma. And it's incredibly difficult to sit with grief for long periods of time. It, it's a muscle that needs to be worked out for everyone. And then to, to know kind of when to ask for help, when to say enough for today. How do we help each other feel better? How do we kind of connect with the best parts of ourselves? That to me has been historically navigated by, by mental health professionals, as well as folks in our community, spiritual advisors or elders of, of some kind who have walked this path a, a few years more than the rest of us. And so you are stigmatized by association and your life is actually going to be a little different because of it. And I would really encourage kind of being aware of that, being present with that, as well as seeking help uh, wherever you can find it. Zach Skiles is a U.S. Marine veteran and a clinical psychologist based in the Pacific Northwest. He was profiled in the November issue of Rotary Magazine, the feature story, Home from War, A Hard-Won Struggle to Find Peace, written by Kate Silver. Zach, thank you so much for this conversation, and we wish you all the best in your work and in your future journeys. Thank you. It's great to be here. In my conversation with Zach, you may have heard him mention the term post-traumatic growth. He credits some of his own accomplishments to the growth he experienced after the harrowing challenges of war and homelessness. Michaela Haas is a journalist who's done a great deal of research into this idea. In fact, much of the science behind post-traumatic growth comes from two people who have greatly informed her work, University of North Carolina psychologists Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun. But for her book, Bouncing Forward, Michaela also gathered many firsthand stories, including tales from writer Maya Angelou and military flight surgeon Rhonda Corna. Through them, she learned how people grow emotionally and spiritually after trauma. Michaela, it's really nice to be in conversation with you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So in your essay and, and in your book, you talk about this phenomenon of post-traumatic growth. Uh, what do you mean by that exactly? What is that? 
I didn't invent the term. It was actually coined by two psychologists at the University uh, of North Carolina, Charlotte, and they were working with trauma survivors, cancer patients, people who've lost their children, people, veterans, people who've gone through all kinds of trauma. And they were surprised to hear again and again that people shared they had learned something from that traumatic experience. Not saying that trauma is anything good. Of course, you know, nobody wishes they had gone through trauma. But what these two psychologists found after decades of working with survivors was that a lot of survivors report a greater personal strength, deeper relationships. You kind of find out who your true friends are uh, when you've gone through real hardship, discovering new perspectives, appreciating life, finding a deeper appreciation for life, and a more intensive spirituality. And so... That's really what we mean by post-traumatic growth. It's the benefits, surprising benefits survivors derive from working through traumas. Are these things that happen just organically, spontaneously, by happenstance, or can one learn techniques to help actually lean into growth possibilities coming out of a traumatic experience? Sometimes they do happen spontaneously. Like one of the people I feature in my book is Rhonda Cornham. And I also opened my rotary essay with her because she was a trauma surgeon and her Black Hawk helicopter was shot down in the first Iraq war. And she uh, was badly injured. She was sexually assaulted. She was kept prisoner of war. And she came out of that experience immediately with a sense of, oh, this is making me a better doctor. I will be able to relate to my patients better. It's making me a better friend, a better person. But that's quite rare. And then interestingly, what she went on to do was she developed a resilience training for the U.S. Army because, and that's one of the shocking things, really, when she went into war, she had no psychological preparation for war. And soldiers really didn't have that. They were physically prepared, but not psychologically prepared for war. And so that's what she set out to change. And she implemented a comprehensive training in resilience and actually teaching about post-traumatic growth into the army. And interestingly, she discovered that a lot of the things she did naturally were actually techniques that can be taught. And that's how she really changed the way the army thinks about trauma and post-traumatic stress. I'd love to talk more about some of the techniques, what the science is telling us, and also the art of this, as you talk about in the subtitle of the book. Before we do, in addition to Army Surgeon Rhonda Cornham, you profile people from all walks of life, including well-known figures like the late Maya Angelou and Temple Grandin, who have, in their own ways, experienced both trauma and post-traumatic growth. Where did your interest in this as a topic come from? I understand it grew out of your own experiences, largely experiencing trauma. It did. And actually, it was Maya Angelou who gave me the title for the book, Bouncing Forward. That's a quote from her, because she endured sexual violence. When she was eight years old, she was raped. And she didn't speak after that for five years. She didn't speak a word. And so my interest, really, I always thought I was a fairly resilient person. And I uh, was studying Asian studies in Asia, and I, I spent two years in Nepal and India. And when I came back, I completely crashed physically. I was so ill, I was bedridden for eight months. 
And I was miserable. And though I had always thought of myself as a resilient and strong person, I mean, I was not only physically weak, but I was just despondent. And that my husband cheated on me and wasn't there for me at the time didn't help. But I really didn't think of it as trauma at the time, because the traditional definition of trauma is that it involves death or a brush with death or serious injury. And at the time, we didn't really know what was wrong with me. But, you know, I was 28 years old. That's a time in your life when you're supposed to be strong and getting things done. And I just, many days, I just couldn't even get out of bed. It was miserable. And so I wanted to know could I learn to become more resilient? I was reading life stories of you know people we all admire, like Maya Angelou or Nelson Mandela, who'd spent decades in prison. And I was wondering, how did these people do it? How did they survive this unspeakable violence? And compared to them, what I had gone through is, of course, nothing. But that really motivated me to seek out these conversations and to learn what I could do to become better, not just physically, but mentally and also spiritually i i got into meditation that's one of the things that surprised me the most when i actually attended the resilience training at the army boot camp they start their day with mindfulness meditation every morning and you have all these soldiers and their camel fatigues and they they you know sit quietly for 10 minutes and breathe in and out and just try to be present and that's kind of where the work starts Wow. So meditation and, and mindfulness practices, broadly speaking, can be very helpful here. What else can be helpful in moving from a place of trauma to a place of growth and resilience? One of the most important things is support having support and seeking support. And I think, um, especially when we talk about the army, it's actually a really, really positive sign that the suicide numbers have declined significantly. They're still too high, but they went down from 22 a day of veterans to 16 or 17 a day. Still too much, but it's getting better. And not only I attribute this to a real change in attitude, what I witnessed at the resilience training is a total shift in mind change. It's not anymore the Rambo mentality. I'm strong. I'm invincible. I can do anything. But they are now encouraging soldiers to ask for help, to admit vulnerabilities. And the Army has recognized that this Rambo mentality of the invincible soldiers can be fatal. It's not helpful. What is helpful is being open about I'm afraid. I'm fearful. Uh, I don't think I can do this to admit this. Every soldier now carries a number where they can call for help when they go through difficult times to be open about that. And that I think is crucial. And that not just goes for soldiers, but for all of us to be open about our vulnerabilities, to be open about what we're struggling with. You know, there's a famous saying, everybody's going through something you know nothing about. And I think that is so true. You don't know what the other person is going through and to open that space. And they even found that with children, you know, for the longest time, psychologists thought children who grow up in abusive homes are kind of doomed to become abusers themselves or not to be able to have healthy relationships. And that's wrong. That's just not true. And as we now know, what children need is to have at least one person who's there for them, who believes in them, who encourages them. Maya Angelou had that in the form of her grandmother, 
Others have that in the form of a teacher or a mentor. Anybody can do that. And whether it's children or we as adults, we need at least one person, you know, we can call at three in the morning uh, and who will who will answer the phone and drive out to us in the rain when when we need it. Michaela, what is the science telling us about uh, the degree to which post-traumatic growth is real and and what the benefits and pathways are for it? When I started this research, I thought it was rare. And what I learned from psychologists that it's much more common than we think. Up to 90% of people experience at least one aspect of post-traumatic growth, most often a deeper appreciation for life and deeper relationships. And I think this is really encouraging because I think as a society, we fall into one of two extremes. We either don't want to acknowledge drama, we don't want to talk about it, we try to deny it, or we over-dramatize it. We think people... or even you know, people who go through trauma, we think, oh, I'll never be happy again. This is the end of the world. And to know that there is this body of research that is grounded in innumerable studies have now been done with survivors of all kinds of traumas, whether it's severe illness, cancer, war. And so, so many do say that they come out of it having learned something. And as Richard Tedeschi says, one of the quotes I like from him is, when there has been an earthquake that shattered everything, why not build something better? Why not build uh, something stronger than what was there before? And a lot of the people I spoke with, and as you mentioned, they're from all walks of life, they did exactly that. They made some changes that uh, gave their life a new direction and a new meaning. And just like Sex Giles or Rhonda Cornham, very, very often it is helping others going through their difficulties. And I think that's invaluable to have gone through that experience of deep pain, of confronting our you know, really existential questions to then be there for others who are going through something similar or something different, but who are going through a hard time. As we certainly know from Zach Skiles' story, trauma, in his case, PTSD, can be deeply debilitating so what do you say to those who might be listening and feel an approach like what we're talking about here is either overly optimistic or that it frankly just isn't sufficient to address the real hardships of PTSD, to the, the real threats that can come to one's well-being um, by virtue of, of trauma and the mental health challenges it, it causes? I think it's crucial to acknowledge that post-traumatic growth is not the opposite of post-traumatic stress, but the two go hand in hand. In a way, the growth only happens because of the stress, because of the struggles we go through. And so they are right. Uh, and Tedeschi himself says he does not bring up the idea of post-traumatic growth in therapy. He waits for his clients to come to that insight whenever they're ready, whenever they come to that insight. It's not something a therapist or an outsider can't, you know, it's not like, hey, get over it already. You know, nothing is, this is not helpful, you know, where you say, oh, something good will come out of it. That a lot of, a lot of people who are going through struggles find that extremely annoying. So this is why I emphasize there's a real work there to do to heal from a traumatic event. And I don't like to talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome, because again, I learned this from Richard Tedeschi, who says trauma really comes from the word wound. It means we have been hurt. 
mentally hurt, physically hurt, emotionally hurt, it's a wound. And just as somebody who crashes against a wall at 60 miles an hour, you know, they have many, many injuries. They may have broken many bones. In the same way, someone who has been through severe trauma, they're injured. They're morally injured, physically injured, emotionally injured. And we need to treat it as such, as an injury that needs time and support to heal. And I, I don't appreciate the stigma that's attached with the word syndrome. And of course, it has its purpose for you know medical insurance and stuff. But I think to struggle with trauma is very, very real and deserves acceptance instead of judgment. Your title, Bouncing Forward, um, it, you, you talked about it being inspired by Maya Angelou and her use of that coupling. I'm curious to know, what does it suggest for you in terms of what's possible for, for all of us, um, whether we've experienced the most severe forms of trauma or just life's setbacks? It's a beautiful image for me because resilience literally means bouncing back. But pretty much everybody I spoke with for this book or in my own life, um, and I can say this for myself too, life isn't the same after trauma. You can never really go back. So you have to go forward. You have to find a new path forward. And I've changed my life after after the severe period of illness happened and every single person in the book found a new meaning in life and found new ways of helping others. So bouncing forward to me is an image of discovering or being open to new possibilities that maybe wouldn't have happened if we hadn't gone through trauma. And of course, you know, nobody wishes to go through trauma. We all wish we would have learned these lessons without having to go through trauma, but it's not our choice, right? Things happen. Life happens. Almost all of us experience at least one trauma, one traumatic event in our life or more. And so why not use that to rethink how we approach life and if we can't do something more meaningful with our lives than before? And last question for you, Michaela. How's life for you today? Pretty good. <laughs> One of the things I do now is as a journalist, I've been a reporter for a long time, and I've become a reporter of solutions journalism. I work for um, not just for Rotary Magazine, but for David Burns, Reasons to be Cheerful. And solutions journalism means researching effective solutions to urgent problems. So a lot of journalists, a lot of the media is, you know, pretty negative. Uh, we report a lot of bad news. And so I find great joy in reporting, not just good news, we're not talking about fluffy good news, but about really efficient solutions to urgent problems like climate change, like world hunger, like biodiversity issues. And that's part of my joy is you always find somebody who's actively working towards a solution. And that goes, you know, whether we talk about trauma and mental health, or that really goes for anything else, you know, <laughs> uh, look for the helpers. That's, that's always true. And that's what I now get to do professionally. And that's a great joy for me. Well, we greatly appreciate you helping us in this conversation and understanding the power of post-traumatic growth. Michaela Haas is a journalist and author of the book, Bouncing Forward, The Art and Science of Cultivating Resilience. She also wrote the essay that appears in the November 
2022 issue of Rotary Magazine, also called Bounce Forward. Michaela, thanks so much and all the best to you. Thank you. Special thanks to our guests, Zach Skiles and Michaela Haas. If you or someone you know is struggling post-trauma, help is available. Veterans and service members in crisis and their families and friends can call the Veterans Crisis Line to connect with qualified, caring VA responders. The toll-free hotline is confidential and operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Dial 988 and press 1. That's 988 and press 1. Rotary members can visit the website for the Rotary Action Group on Mental Health Initiatives. You can find it at ragonmentalhealth.org. There you'll get ideas for service projects as well as toolkits. This episode of the Rotary Magazine podcast was produced by Kristen Morris and edited by Johanna Zorn with production by Mike Novak. The music in today's episode was composed by Yu Su Kim. Audio production assistance was provided by Alex Ericanon. I'm Steve Edwards. Thanks for listening.